Well, we are two days away from Thanksgiving and a lot of other holiday gatherings. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about how we can get along with others at a holiday gathering. <laughs> Last week we talked about uh, the Sutra, the five ways of putting an end to anger. And, and so this week I want to offer five ways of fostering harmony so they can complement each other. First, I want to talk about the word Thanksgiving. Uh, it's actually a really beautiful title for this holiday because it has two meanings. So the, the way we typically think about it, it, we typically think about we are giving thanks for all that we have received. We, we live in a bounty. We are some of the most fortunate people in the world. Um, I don't know that any of us here have ever gone without a meal because we didn't choose to go without a meal. I don't know any of, of us here have had to sleep out in the cold and in the rain because we didn't have a place to sleep. We have a lot to be thankful for. Mm. Generosity, is a, uh, uh, or excuse me, gratitude is a big part of our practice. Be starting to remind ourselves to see and be grateful for all the things that we have been given. It's easy for us to overlook it, but Thanksgiving is a time for us to do that, to consciously come together as a culture and say, we are going to notice what we've, what we've received and give thanks for that. So that's, that's a really lovely connotation for Thanksgiving. But there's another connotation to it that's probably not so much in our culture, but that, that I like and that I think is important. Uh, it's to recognize that we have the ability to give. We are thankful that we can be giving. We give thanks for our own giving. And even more than gratitude for what we're receiving, giving is a key to happiness. We don't develop it so much in our, in our culture. Uh, we, we focus more on what we receive, but this practice, uh, a foundation of this practice, is our giving. Dana is what we call it. And so these are two sides of a coin, uh, gratitude and generosity. They're really not two things. They have to go together. So we can breathe in the gratitude and breathe out the generosity and live in that balance of giving and receiving. If we're so focused on receiving, we become kind of narcissistic and selfish. If all we do is give, then we deplete ourselves. So we have to live in this balance of giving and receiving. And when we live in that balance, when something comes our way, we marvel at it, and then we look at how to share immediately. We move it along, we pass it along, we, we welcome it in, and we immediately, and we live in a kind of abundance of both receiving and giving. So how does this relate to our family challenges at, uh, at a holiday? Because we all get together and we 
<laughs> we see each other face to face and we live Ram Dass's famous statement that if you think you're enlightened, just go spend a week with your family. And we get to live this. <laughs> we see how hard it really is. So these are the people that we have received the most from. And can we find a way to receive and give gracefully with them? Not easy at all. But I think that one of the ways that we can offer generosity is by accepting people as they are. That's a really generous thing to do, to accept people as they present themselves without demanding they be something else. That's a gift of generosity. So we can receive them and we can allow them to be themselves. So I want to talk about uh, some ways that we can actually do that, some concrete ways. But first, let's call to mind a person that's a challenge to us. And this might be somebody that you're going to see in a couple of days at a Thanksgiving meal. Maybe you won't see them, but call, spend some time bringing that person right in front of you. See them right here with you. Feel their presence. And as they sit there right in front of you, notice how you feel in their presence. What happens in your body? Is there a sense of contraction? Maybe a painful feeling? A sense of pulling within to protect yourself? Notice what it might be for you so that you know that feeling. So what do we do with this person? Now that, we, now, that we're, now that they're here with us, how can we be with them? So the first thing I'd like to suggest is that we see this person not as a state of being, but as a process. One of the ways that the Buddha taught that we misperceive the world and therefore suffer is that we put a sign on things. We say, this is that. This person is like that. You know, she is always talking. He is a jerk. Um, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we want to put a label on them, we hang a sign on them. So that's, that's what, what the Buddha would call um, signlessness is our freedom from that. And one of the ways to, to practice that signless, signlessness, that freedom, is to see the person not as having a particular sign about them, but they're in a process. You know, everything is changing all the time. There's no way that anything can remain static. It might appear that things remain static because they change slowly. Some things change very slowly. 
we've never seen Mount Rainier different than it is. So it seems like it's static. But it could change like that. You know, every few hundred years, apparently, there's an eruption, and it's very different. But it appears to us to be very static. So we think, oh, things are static. But they aren't. Some things change so quickly that you could hardly perceive them. Apparently, when, the, when people send these particles through these accelerators to, to look at the subatomic particles, they last such an infinitesimally short amount of time that you know, they're hardly, it's hardly able to be noticed that they even existed and they're gone again. So everything changes at its own rate. And this person that's your difficulty is changing at their own rate. It might be hard to see that they're changing. It might be easy to see that they're changing. But they aren't static. They are changing. When we look inside ourselves, I think it's easy for us to see that we're changing. Just think back to the way you were as a child, the way you were as a teenager or a young adult. You're very different now. The things that you believed and that were important to you they're different. And just bit by bit, you changed. If you doubt that you've changed, maybe you could go pick up your high school yearbook and read what you wrote in it. <laughs> or, or take a look at the tattoo you just had to have 20 years ago and, uh, and see how, what that says about where you were 20 years ago versus now. We're all changing. But we tend to see others as unchanging. So this is a way that we can become freer from that suffering with other people, to always see them as a process. We can see them like, um, like a rose bush. You know, when we're growing roses in our garden and we see that there's a bud on the rose bush, we don't cut the bud off because it's not a rose. We know that it has the potential to be a rose. And so we allow it to be a bud and maybe we water it and fertilize it, and we help that bud become a full-fledged rose. So we can do that with the other person too. I, I learned this lesson so well from my wife's grandmother in Hawaii. She was a real bodhisattva. And the big family, and there was always somebody in the family that was on the outs, you know. And there was one particular person that we just all couldn't get along with very well. And we'd, we'd all sit around, nick, 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 nick. she did this, she did that. And uh, Sandra's grandmother would say, you know, she's getting better. She's getting better. And she'd, she'd bring us back to seeing, seeing this person as a process, not as a state of mind that we could go nick, 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 about to each other. And she was really a great bodhisattva. So let's bring that challenging person back in front of us again. Sitting right here. What would it be like if instead of seeing them with a sign, with a label, we saw them as a process? We allowed them to move in their process at their own pace How does that change the way you feel inside when you 
picture this person in front of you. Well, now how about another way? How about the second way? Giving away control. Mm. When I talk to people that are that I'm helping with uh, caregiving challenges, I encourage them to have a firm spine so they can have a soft front. So a firm spine is that part of you that knows this is my bottom line. This is my non-negotiable point. I will not be bent beyond that point. No matter what comes my way, I will not go beyond that. Whatever you say or do will not cause me to say or do this. That's your firm spine. When you have that, then you can meet whatever comes with a soft front. You can really open up and let yourself be kind and flowing because you know that you will not be run over. Your firm spine will be there. So when you have this person that's a challenge, you can hold a firm spine about what are your non-negotiable items. And when you know them, you can be so free and open with them to go anywhere else, anywhere else they need to go. And it won't take away a single thing from you. It won't be an essential compromise. Pope John the 23rd said it this way. He said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So that's his way of saying firm spine, soft front. In the essentials, unity, but in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all of them, a kindness. So what might that be for you, your firm spine? What do you need to hold on to with this person? And what can you let go of? Is it okay, for instance, that you have different political opinions? Does that fall into your firm spine or your soft front? You have to decide. That's a big hot button for us these days. If you decide that you don't need to have agreement on political issues. That's not your firm spine. Imagine the freedom you could have to have a soft front when they talk on and on and on. You don't have to resist them. But it might be the other way around. Your firm spine might require that. And so I hope you honor yourself. My suggestion is that you know that going in. And even if you do have to resort to your firm spine, can you do it with charity? Can you do it with kindness? And not in a way that's divisive and belittling, but a way that honors your truth and allows you to stand in your truth without being belittled or belittling the other person. So bring that person again in front of you. And imagine now your firm spine is fully in place. And imagine flowing softly with them as they do this and that. 
able to accommodate them without resistance. Knowing that if your firm spine is activated, you can respond. Third technique, letting go of anger. Hmm. So I love, the, I love the analogy, I've used it before, that holding anger is like picking up a hot coal with the intention of throwing it at someone else to hurt them. And you may hurt them, you may hit them with it, but you certainly will harm yourself. You know, the thing about anger is that oftentimes we hold anger toward a person and they have no idea that we're even angry. You know, we think that we're angry to somehow punish them or change their behavior, but mostly we're just hurting ourselves. The thing about our adversary is that they may act in a way that to us is just so obvious and worthy of our anger. And they may then forget that action in the next minute, and we hold it the rest of our lives. Hmm. Sometimes I reflect on, the, on some of the really truly awful things that I have done in my life, the ways that I've hurt people, the things that I've said and done, and those are just the ones I know about. You know, <laughs> there's probably so many more that I've done that I don't even know I did. And my heartfelt wish is that the people that I have done those things to are not holding anger towards me. And I don't have that wish because I don't want to be held accountable. I do want to be held accountable. I don't want them to suffer from, have, from holding the anger. It might be someone that I haven't seen since childhood, and they might be still holding anger about something I did, and I don't even know who they are anymore. They don't even know who I am anymore, but they may be holding on to that anger still. And I, my hope is that they, are, they will not do that, that they will be able to let go, to free themselves. So bringing that person again in front of us, how would it feel if you were to let go of your anger toward them? Can you feel a relaxing in your body, just contemplating that idea? Letting go of your anger is not the same as saying that what they did is okay. Letting go of your anger is freeing yourself from carrying that hot coal around with you.
So method number four. <coughs> so last week we looked at the five ways of putting an end to anger. And this is related to that, that way. Now, I don't know if you remembered in that, in that sutra, they have this beautiful image of someone coming to a crossroads and in the crossroads they find a buffalo's footprint that has a little bit of water in it and they're very, very thirsty. And they know that if they take a leaf or their hand to try and scoop up the water, that they'll muddy the water and make it undrinkable. So they get down onto their knees and their hands and they put their lips right into the water and they drink the water without stirring it up. Now, if you can get past the idea of putting your lips into a buffalo's footprint and drinking the water, uh, that probably worked a lot better 2,500 years ago. It's hard to imagine us doing that. But what I like about that is, first of all, that, you, that you're going to the water without disturbing the water. And you, when you do that, the water is available to you. If you were to disturb it, it wouldn't be available to you anymore. And in order to do that, you have to get down on your hands and knees and put your lips right down into the water. Not a typical stance that we, that we want to have when we're trying to defend ourselves against this adversarial person we have. That sutra invites us to look at some essential qualities of a person. Their actions in speech, in their heart, and in their bodily actions and find, even if their speech and their actions are not kind, to find, for instance, a little bit of kindness in their heart and to focus on that. Just like you wouldn't stir up the water with your hand, you don't stir up the water by focusing on their speech and their actions. You look at the kindness of their heart. That's the heart of the practice of helping our adversaries be more beautiful. There's something beautiful in everyone. And our job is to find it, to water that seed, and to not pay attention to the, the unhelpful things in their behavior and in their words. Uh, Mr. Rogers, who I'm quite taken with these days, I see him as, a, as an antidote to our, our current cultural woes, he tells a story about uh, when he was a child, he was quite sickly, and his parents overprotected him. They, they kept him in a room with an air conditioner because he had breathing problems. And, and his grandfather was his great advocate. And when he'd go to his grandfather's house, his grandfather had stone walls around the house. And he would get up on the stone walls and play and run around on top of these stone walls. And his, it stressed his parents out. And they tried to always get him off the walls. And his grandfather said, no, no, let the boy do it. There's worse things in the world than falling and getting scrapes or a broken bone. And so to, to Mr. Rogers, he felt like his father saw what was beautiful, his grandfather saw what was beautiful in him that his parents couldn't see. And he always felt like that was, a, that was the person who helped him be his most beautiful. And he came away with that, with this, this conviction to allow other people to correct and judge children. His job was to help children see their own wisdom and their own beauty. So he did exactly this practice. He overlooked 
he overlooked the children's difficulties, misbehavior, whatever, and he would see what was what was beautiful in them. I don't know if you remember the large bell we had for our ceremony, for our transmission ceremony. That bell also requires that you overlook uh, its quirks to find its beauty because it has, it has a flaw in it. And if you don't invite the bell in exactly the right place, in exactly the right way, it will buzz. And it's not very beautiful. So it's, it took, you know, I've had that bell for maybe 15 years, and it took me a long time to figure out exactly how to invite that bell so that it was beautiful. And I didn't invite it in such a way that brought out its ugliness. So let's bring this person back in front of us again. What would it feel like if you were able to water the seeds of this person's beauty and not water the seeds of this person's misbehavior or of their unkind words? How does that change the feeling inside your body as this person sits near you? So one last technique, the fifth technique. It's related to the fourth technique. The fifth technique is help yourself be more beautiful. You get to be who you are, even in the face of your adversaries. You have that right. You have the right to let your most beautiful qualities shine and to not be triggered by the behavior of other people. So again, Mr. Rogers. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this clip, but there's a clip that you, could, that you can look up on YouTube. It was part of his, the, the movie that, it was a documentary they made about him a year or so ago, was, it was, had this clip in it. And I'm just so moved by this clip. Every time I see it, I just, I get it tears. So uh, the story is in the early 70s, uh, PBS was a brand new thing and only been around for a couple of few years. And the, there was a Senate committee that wanted to cut the funding for PBS. So this senator that was in charge of this committee was just exactly what you would imagine from a, an, an arrogant uh, person. You know, he had a sort of a sort of a condescending way of talking and. Apparently, the uh, people had been coming in and testifying all day in front of this committee about this, and he'd made up his mind that he was going to cut the money. He just had to get this out of the way. So people testified, testified, testified. So when it was Mr. Rogers' turn to speak, he was, he, the senator said, I'm tired of hearing all these people read stuff. I don't want you to read anything else. I just want you to talk. So Mr. Rogers sa said, well, I prepared this 10-minute talk, and it's sort of philosophical, but I'll I'll put it away. And he asked the senator if he could tell him the words to one of the songs that he sings for the children. 
And it was the, the words of the song were about the, a, a, giving a child permission to feel what they felt and then decide how to act afterwards. And it was so beautiful the way Mr. Rogers, in this uh, temple of power that's, that he's in, that he's come into, with the cynical undertones of, of wielding power and this senator with his kind of flippant, you know, rolling his eyes kind of thing, and oh, who is this guy, you know? And Mr. Rogers was absolutely himself, his kind self. He didn't change himself one little bit to accommodate this environment. And at the end of his, his uh, words, this senator was obviously moved, and he says, well, I guess you get your money. And I just, I, I just see that as such a powerful act that he, that he did to go into that room and allow himself to be beautiful, to be himself, to not mold himself to what he thought was someone else's expectations about him. And that wouldn't have worked if he'd have gone in there and displayed his not-so-beautiful seeds. It was, it was that he was going in there with his most beautiful seeds, and, and offering those. So I really, that's very hard for me to do. It's very hard for me to do, and so I think that's why I'm so moved by this. I tend to be very um, empathetically tuned to the people and the situations I'm in, and I tend to very quickly align myself with what I, I feel like they need. And so I look at him doing that, and I just look at a hero. So let's bring back this person, this difficult person in front of us again. What would it be like to allow yourself to be your most beautiful in the presence of this person? No matter what agenda they may have for you, no matter what sort of behavior they may display. But you're able to be your most beautiful self in the midst of it all. How does that change the physical feeling in your body from the very first time we invited this person to come in front of us? So these are the five ways that I'd like to suggest we might be able to use to help us out when we're together with the people that we love, but that also challenge us. So we'll see them as a process, not a state of being. We can give away control because we have our firm spine, so we can just give away anything that's not that. We can let go of our anger 
Let go of that coal we've been carrying sometimes for decades. We can help that person be more beautiful and we can help ourselves be more beautiful. So you may need to sit with this a bit on your meditation cushion. You can't expect to, in the heat of the moment, pull this out of your hat. This is a practice. So you might want to sit on the cushion and, and practice this. Of call, that, call this person to mind. Allow their presence to be with you and experiment with it. You might uh, find an ally. You might find somebody that you, that you can say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be practicing these things. And if, if I seem to be losing myself, would you just you know, tap me on the shoulder or something? Help, help me remember. Or you could have an ally in your pocket. You can bring uh, a pebble in your pocket to remind yourself. You know, sometimes people wear mandalas around their wrists or they carry rosaries. These are perfect examples of this kind of a reminder that, ah, this is my intention. You might even hold this under the table if it's a really difficult situation. Hold your <laughs> reminder in your hand. So there it is. <laughs> so you can remember. So those are my suggestions. I hope it works.